Chavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. We are trying to do better every single day. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you with us in this second hour. Uh, some breaking news. Uh, President Biden has said uh, that Jimmy Carter is now close to his transition. Uh, and uh, he has also said that uh, President Carter has asked him to uh, offer the eulogy at his funeral. So uh, we, were, we were put on notice a couple of weeks ago by former President Carter himself that his days were numbered. Uh, he left the hospital, went home to uh, his longtime residence in Plains, Georgia, uh, and said that whatever days he had left, he wanted to spend with his family uh, and loved ones. And so uh, he uh, has been at home for, I guess, what, two or three weeks now, whatever it's been. Uh, and uh, President Biden has said that President Carter is close to making this transition, and he has been asked to uh, offer the eulogy uh, at his uh, uh, funeral services uh, when that moment comes. I've been honored in my career to have interviewed uh, most of the presidents in my 30-year uh, broadcast career, and uh, I have interviewed, uh, been honored to interview Jimmy Carter more than any other president. Uh, I checked my list a couple of weeks ago when he made the announcement that he was uh, going home to transition. And uh, it turns out that Jimmy Carter, I've interviewed the most. Uh, Bill Clinton would be second, Barack Obama third, and down from there. Um, but I uh, had many, many occasions to sit with former President Jimmy Carter for conversations. And so uh, when that moment comes, and let's face it, we all uh, one day have to do that dance with mortality. We all have to do that dance with mortality at some point um, for every one of us. You ain't going to get out of here alive. You will not get out of here alive. And so it happens to every one of us. So when that moment comes, we will download you on some um, some great conversations that I've had with uh, President Carter uh, over the years. But that news out of uh, the White House. Now to the conversation in this hour about the impact of college diversity with Dr. Elizabeth Aries, who has chronicled the experiences of 58 Amherst College students from diverse racial and economic backgrounds. Her study spans over eight years now, and we will talk in this hour and hear more about what she has discovered about campus diversity, privilege, inequality, and more. Uh, I wanted to have this conversation, one, because I'm fascinated by uh, her study and what she's discovered, um, but also because we are in this moment where everybody um, is talking about D, E, and I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Of course, in many respects, uh, D, E, and I are under attack now. Think about this. After the murder of George Floyd, everybody, or as we say in the neighborhood, everybody, everybody had a DE&I program, and everybody was talking about DE&I, everybody promising they're going to do better, everybody said we're going to do better by black-owned media, all those lies were told, I mean, all those commitments were made uh, after the murder of George Floyd. Now here we are uh, in an economy that's becoming tighter. Um, there may be a run on these banks now, given what's happened with these bank closures. People are scared about that. Look at the look at the Dow Jones. Look at the stock market. Um, uh, it's clear the evidence abounds in this country, indeed around the world. I was reading about Credit Suisse this morning. Um, there are a number of indicators um, that people are scared, no matter what President Biden has said, about the impact uh, that might be felt in the days ahead if more banks continue to to fail. Uh, we've seen this before, right? 2008. So we know what it's like when we are told that banks that are too big to fail, in fact, do just that. They fail. Um, and so now, in this moment, DE&I is under attack once again. So companies starting to slice budgets, uh, cut budgets, start with DE&I. So just literally a few years ago, you were promising to do better by DE&I, and now here you are a few years later, and you're cutting budgets 
and laying people off in the DE&I uh, departments. Now, that's the conversation writ large about DE&I, but let's focus uh, more uh, laser-like in this hour on what happens at the college level regarding the impact of diversity. With that said, let me welcome Dr. Elizabeth Aries to this program. Dr. Aries, how are you today? Great, and thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation. It is my great honor to have you on. Glad we got an hour. There's a lot to unpack, and we will we'll, we'll do all of that uh, in the next uh, 60 minutes or so. Let me start with this. I want to start broad, deliberately, and unapologetically, and then we can narrow and get more into your data uh, and what you've learned uh, about campus diversity, privilege, and inequality when we move forward. But let me start again with a broad question. What have you uh, discovered uh, about the ways in which exposure to diversity in college impacts the lives of graduates, particularly in terms of social mobility, civic engagement, and beyond? Uh, so again, it's a broad question. As much canvas as you need to paint, take it away. Okay. So let me start with this. My study actually took place over 12 years. I said eight years. Okay. Uh, right. okay. Yeah, no, that's okay, because it had several pieces to it. Okay. I began when the students entered his first years, and I interviewed them at the beginning and the end of their first year. I interviewed them again at the end of their senior year, and then I interviewed them for a final time when they were age 30. Mm -hmm. So one thing I was able to do is trace the changes that occurred over time. Mm. And let me just start with some of the findings. Um, when the students entered college, I interviewed them about the role race played in their identities, how important race was to their identities, whether they saw advantages and disadvantages to their racial identity. And interestingly, but probably not surprising in the least to you, what I found was that the white students in my study who entered college back in 2005 basically said that race had very little meaning in their own lives, that mm. they hardly thought about themselves as being white. Um, they, it, it, they couldn't articulate much of anything that that meant to them. Mm -hmm. They rarely thought about race. The other thing is 30% of them, when I asked them if there were advantages or disadvantages to being white, 30% said that it was a disadvantage. Mm. No one, I know this may sound surprising, but what they said was they pointed to affirmative action programs that were now offering advantages to black people that they weren't being offered, so they saw themselves as being discriminated against. None of those students seemed to have any awareness of the racial inequalities that those particular programs may have been set up to address. <laughs> uh, they had very hard time articulating any advantages that accrued to them because they were right. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there were probably two white students who had a good sense of that. But fast forward 12 years later, I interviewed them when they were 30 years old, and I asked them to reflect back on what they had learned during college about race and racism. And I asked them the source of that learning. And 80% of them said the source of their learning about race came from the relationships that they developed with black students on the campus. Mm. And in the course of hearing about those students' lived experience of race, because they're interacting on a small campus like this in every setting, they're living together in the dormitories, they're eating together in a single dining hall, they're in the classrooms, in labs, in extracurricular activities, they have a lot of contact. And 
through hearing the lived experiences of black students, the white students reported having their eyes opened to racism that their classmates had endured through their lives. Mm. This was not something they were well aware of, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, uh, earlier. They weren't sure, many of them, weren't sure whether racism really existed. Okay, they became, 80% said, they became aware during college of their white privilege. Mm. Because in seeing and learning about the experiences of their black classmates and their families and their daily experiences, they came to understand the privileges they had as white people, the first of which was the privilege of not having to think about race every day, which their black classmates did. So this, to me, was a very important finding about the importance of people developing close relationships. And part of doing that, people get to know each other's lives, past lives, life experiences. Let me come in. Okay. Let, me, let, me, let me jump in right there, Dr. Aries. This is going to be a good hour. I can see already that the data, the data here is fascinating. Uh, and I got, I'm, I'm, I'm full of questions already. She ain't got done laying the foundation yet. Uh, so let me, let me uh, do this. And when we come forward, we'll come right back and pick up with the rest of what she learned uh, from her 12-year study. You're listening to Dr. Elizabeth Aries on KBLA Talk 1580. It does indeed with Dr. Elizabeth Aries as we talk about uh, the impact of college diversity, struggles, and successes at age 30. The book uh, that she has written based on her data uh, will drop in April of 2023, uh, but we are delighted to get an early read, uh, an early take on what you're going to discover when you get into this book again. It's called The Impact of College Diversity, Struggles and Successes at Age 30. She's already laid some of the groundwork for what she discovered uh, over her 12-year study, which started back in 2005. So we, I've got notes on that, Dr. Aries. Uh, continue. Give me more about the data you discovered. Well, let me give you one more piece of data sure. about the white students and what they learned. Okay. Because one question that I asked both the black and the white students is what messages they aspired to pass on to their children about race and racial inequality. Now, out of my whole study, only two of them had children to this point. Mm -hmm. So these are only aspirations, but I think they tell us something about their thinking at age 30 about, about race, okay? Mm -hmm. And for the white students, half of them wanted to make their children aware of the presence of racism in the society and the internalization of racial stereotypes and prejudice. Mm -hmm. This was not something that was necessarily part of their own socialization, but they felt was very important to pass on to their children. And a third of them talked about what they felt to be the importance of raising their children in a racially diverse environment mm. because they believed in the importance of having intergroup contact and they feared the outcomes for their children in growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods where they would go to predominantly white schools and race would not be something that, that was highly salient to them in their lives. So that's just, mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that in, in terms of like how being part of a diverse college impacted their understanding of race. No. Um, I love it. Uh, now that you've uh, kind of grounded me uh, in this conversation, let me let me let me jump from here. I, I uh, yes. as I say all the time, I, I can take it from here. <laughs> now, now that you now, now you laid the groundwork, I, I can do what I do. So let me let me start with this. <laughs> okay, go for it. All right, thank you. Uh, first of all, what do you make of the fact? Again, I'll stay I'll stay big and broad for a second, then we'll narrow this thing. What do you okay. make of the fact that what you just laid out now about the way they over this twelve year period have. Uh, come to understand their own lives, 
the ways in which they have uh, learned to wrestle with uh, my word, to accept, uh, to, to deal with the issue of, of race in this country, um, the aspirations they have for what they want to pass on to their kids, uh, the aspirations they have for their kids living in a racially diverse society. All of that is completely antithetical uh, to the way things are happening in real time in this nation right now. So on the one on the one hand, I see hope in what your data is suggesting to us. On the other hand, again, I'm trying to juxtapose what they see into their future with the drama that we're dealing with right now. How would you square those two things, if you can? Yes, I'm not sure I can. I mean, because one thing that's hanging over us is a Supreme Court decision about whether race can be a factor in college admissions policies. And depending on what the court, which is very conservative, is likely to decide if that is eliminated and you have less opportunity for black people to attend colleges because the states that have already put bans into their state constitutions, this is what's happened in terms of their enrollments. Uh, The black students have been badly hurt. Um, There is less opportunity for this hopefulness because white people are going to have very little opportunity, given that there are racially segregated neighborhoods and schools, to come in contact with people different from themselves and to learn about their lived experiences. So I think that is a big concern. no, it's a major. And I mean, th- th- I'll throw in one more piece sure, of sure, information, sure, sure, sure. okay? Which is, when I asked them what they had learned about race and racial inequality, I asked the source, okay? And so the major source of learning was actually the peer group, mm-hmm. but fifty percent of them said they had learned something in the classroom about race and racism. And one thing that was learned from a classroom that was not learned just by making friends and hearing people's lived experiences was about systemic racism. Mm. That required classroom learning. Mm. Okay, so if we're banning that kind of um, teaching in the classroom about our racial history, about critical race theory, it's going to be very hard for white people to understand Racism. I think I get it. But put a finer point on that. Why did they have to be in the classroom to be downloaded and learn more about systemic racism? Well, I think what you learn from friendships and lived experiences mm-hmm. about is about how racism manifests at the individual level mm-hmm. in terms of stereotypes, in terms of prejudice, in terms of discrimination at the individual level. But how that is baked into state constitutions or laws or it's in the policy and practices of institutions, that doesn't come from getting to know people more deeply. You really learn a lot about racism at the individual level, and that is more what they learned about. But without additional information, I think it, that's not something that they really learned about, because they didn't come away with an understanding of that by the time they graduated. Now, I think given all that's transpired since they graduated, because they graduated in 2009, and all the police brutality mm-hmm. and all the, you know, all the murders of black people, basically, I think, at least in the dimension of our, our criminal justice system and our policing, I think people have gotten a glimpse about systemic racism, but basically... White people know, I don't know what 
black people know about this, but white people know very little about it. And they know more now than they did, but mm-hmm. they don't know enough. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask this question again uh, yes. to give you an yes. opportunity to put a finer point on it. You've already teed it up, but I want to just really drill down on this. Um, okay. What does that one data point suggest to you? The data point I'm talking about now is the one uh, we just discussed, that to understand uh, systemic racism, they had to be in the classroom. What does that data mm-hmm. point uh, say to you? What ought it say to us in the larger demos here um, about uh, not teaching truth, uh, about backing away from certain texts in classrooms across yeah. this country? It says, I think it's very dangerous if we have any hope of overcoming racial inequalities in this country. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one thing, findings, and this is not my findings, but there are research findings that show if you teach people about our racial history, they come to recognize systemic racism more easily. Mm. So if you take that, because our our racial history is all about systemic racism, and if you take that out of our education system, I think it's dangerous. Mm. I think it's in terms of any move towards racial equality. And one thing that crosses my mind is Carol Anderson, who's a historian, she, yes, her book, um, White Rage. Mm -hmm. Yes, and her argument that whenever we make racial progress, there is a backlash, yeah. and we move in the opposite direction. Yep. And I think we're seeing that kind of backlash today. No, she's, a, she's a friend of this program, was on here not long ago. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. I'm not surprised. No. But I, I'll tell you something. I use her book in my, one of my courses, yeah. and it's eye-opening for mm-hmm. my students, black and white. Yeah. No, she's a brilliant professor at, at, at Emory. Uh, in Atlanta, and uh, we always enjoy having her uh, on this program. Um, let, let me let me ask this question. One of the things that fascinated about uh, fascinated me about your work, and let me just say right quick, uh, put a pause, press, press the pause button for a second. Um, this book ought to be when it comes out in April ought to be required reading by Ron DeSantis and anybody else who's attacking oh my God. W- wokeness in this country. Ought to you be, know who uh, I want to really read it? Who's that? That I want. The clerks on the Supreme, oh, the Supreme Court. Court. Yeah, I got you. I got you, <laughs> Professor. Aries. The top of my list. No, I hear you. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Matter of fact, I I, I got to find a list of those clerks. I would be happy to buy them and send them to them as gifts. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I've actually thought about that, but I didn't know whether you can do something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, you you can send books to anybody. It's a free country. It, it for the moment still for, <laughs> for the moment it's still a free country, uh, but it, it ought to be required reading by the law clerks. You're right at the Supreme Court, and certainly uh, by politicians who are. Uh, about the business of attacking wokeness as they see it. But one of the things that fascinated me when, when I when I uh, saw this come across my desk and was anxious to talk to you is that I went to a predominant. I'm an African-American, obviously. I went, to yes. a pre- I went to a predominantly white institution named Indiana University. And yes. so I was fascinated when I saw that these students came from Amherst, another predominantly white institution that has African-Americans and other people of color attended. So Amherst and Indiana University basically put me in the in the same uh, uh, category as some of the students that you uh, that you uh, that you interviewed. So I'm, I'm curious as to what extent you think the institution itself aided and abetted their learning. I hear you talk about peer groups in the classrooms. I get that. What, what, was, there, was there any role that the institution itself aided and abetted their learning, that is, say, there being the white people, about race, uh, etc.? I've been at Amherst since 1975. Wow. And <laughs> I know. Um so when I joined this college, it was almost entirely men. Mm-hmm. It was the first year they took women students. And a very small percentage of the students were students of color. Mm-hmm. And most of them were affluent students. And that has slowly changed over the years. And then much more dramatically in the last 20 years. 
because our last two entering classes, 20% of the incoming students were black. Mm. That, that's changing the composition of the student body. So there has been a very deliberate, deliberate effort to recruit and to um, attract Amherst a much more diverse student body. I mean, today, 49% of our students are students of color. Now, mm. that isn't all black students, sure, but sure, I sure, mean, sure. in terms of the diversity and over, tw- uh, it, I don't know, what div- it varies year to year whether it's been between 20 and 24% on Pell Grants. Mm-hmm. So we have, ve- this institution has dramatically changed. Now, yeah. I will say this, having watched this transition over so many years, Amherst decided back in the early 2000s that it was problematic to just be um, accepting students who came from the wealthiest families in America, Mm -hmm. that we were just reproducing social advantage and not working towards promoting social mobility. Mm. And there was also a strong belief that people learn more if they encountered students from varied backgrounds with different life experiences and different views that would challenge their own embedded beliefs. So they move forward aggressively on the, on the admissions front. But it took a while for Amherst to realize, and I think other colleges making this transition, that it wasn't like the students would just adjust to this place. Amherst was going to have to adjust to the changes it was making in its student body. Yes. And I have watched Amherst do that over these years. And one was that we needed to rethink some of our pedagogies. Mm. And we needed to build in supports. And we needed ultimately to hire a, you know, a person who was a, a DEI officer, mm-hmm. you know, and establish an office because we did great on the diversity piece, but we were slower on the equity and inclusion piece. No, I get it. It took a, it took a while for us to recognize for this to get to the top of the list of what's important for yeah. the institution to do. Yeah. And then it began moving more rapidly. So in terms of what the institution's doing, um, it took a while to catch up to what it had created here <laughs> yeah, on campus. Nope. You know what I mean? Like, nope. Because we move so fast. There's this commitment to people will learn more you know, by living and learning in a the diverse community from people with different, vastly different backgrounds. Right. Um, so now we're doing more than we did, yep. and there are way more supports. For the, I mean, because one of my other findings had to do with what was, what was entailed in the learning of the black students, which was this notion about becoming bicultural. Hold that, hold, hold that, hold that, and hold that thought. I want to come. Uh, we, oh. talk, we, we talk about the, about the white students now. I want to get the, the learnings uh, of the black students uh, in, in terms of what this data has uh, revealed to Doctor Elizabeth Aries. So we'll talk about these black students again and their takeaways uh, after news, traffic, and sports. But who, who, who for, for Amherst? I asked that question not knowing what the answer was going to be, uh, but I love the transparency of uh, Professor Aries, and I love the story of what uh, Amherst has done. Here again, Amherst is Exhibit A uh, in Why College Diversity Matters. Look at the impact it's had on these white students. Uh, when the Supreme Court rules against affirmative action uh, as a factor in college admissions, which they will do, ain't no sense in holding your breath about that. It's going down. Um, this is the impact that uh, this country is going to feel, that these white students will not be as enlightened. I digress. We'll continue when we come forward with Dr. Elizabeth Ann Aries on KBLA Talk.
Excited to be in dialogue in this hour with Dr. Elizabeth Aries, um, been at uh, Amherst since what she said, 74, 75, uh, has a, a book coming out in April that I am uh, dying to get my hands on uh, uh, to read more about her discoveries. Um, the book is called The Impact of College Diversity, Struggles and Successes at Age 30, set to drop in April again this year. Once again, it's called The Impact of college diversity struggles and successes at age 30 for 12 years in case you just tuned in for 12 years she followed a particular set of students 58 to be exact at amherst college uh, of uh, different race uh, backgrounds different economic backgrounds and her learnings uh, are arresting uh, and uh, ought to be as i said earlier required reading uh, for every politician certainly those who are attacking wokeness as it were um, she added to that list every law clerk at the Supreme Court ought to read it. Uh, uh, I hope that many will read this book because it really does speak to the impact that diversity on college campuses has, even as we await a, a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which I suspect, uh, as do you, is going to end this corrective program called Affirmative Action as we know it. Um, so now you're up to speed, essentially, on what we've been talking about in this hour with Dr. Aries. Uh, Professor Aries, um, you, you were starting to, before news, traffic, and sports, give me some sense of the black learnings uh, from this uh, data set. Tell me more. Okay, so one of the things that they learned is what a diverse group of people black people are. That often from the outside, it, black people are seen as some homogeneous group. Mm -hmm. But what they encountered on campus were there were African Americans, there were Caribbean Americans, there were Africans, and these are all groups that are culturally different from one another. Mm -hmm. And they encountered black students who were from affluent families, highly affluent families, middle class families, very low income families. And there are great cultural differences in how people from poor families, you know, families with great means, are raised in their experience in this culture. There were black students with every skin tone, from dark black to, you know, practically white passing. Mm -hmm. And again, those are black people who've had very different experiences in this society because more privilege accrues to uh, black people who don't have the dark black skin. Um, they encountered black students who, some of whom, uh, race was extremely central to their identities, who were out um, trying to educate some of the rest of the campus about race and racism, and other black students on the campus that didn't prioritize race, and other identities and interests were more important to them. So just on one level, the encounter and getting to know the lived experiences of people with very different experiences of being black mm -hmm. was an important source of learning for the black students. Yeah. Black people are not, um, a mon we're not, a mon not a monolith, as you well know. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, I'd say white people from the outside in particular, probably more than black people do, um, you know, see groups that aren't their own group, yeah. that are the outgroup, as, as homogeneous, yeah. you know, and lacking. And whatever stereotype pertains to them is what they see. But I think the thing is, might, well, well, black students might have known about this. They hadn't encountered all these different people. Yes. You know, and it's the same thing. They're learning from getting to know these people. It's similar to what whites learn by encountering black people and getting to know them. You know, yeah. so, okay, so that's one piece of mm -hmm. the learning. Another piece, of course, came from their encounters with white students. Mm -hmm. And... There is no way that Amherst or any other college can keep racism off its campus because people are enculturated in our society with racial stereotypes and prejudice. And so 
there were experiences of racism that the black students had on our campus. And normally, most of it was in the form of microaggressions, Mm -hmm. which each microaggression may seem not a big deal, but it's the accumulation of them that has a large impact. So, you know, they also came to see ways that they were judged differently or felt they were being judged differently or looked at differently than their white peers, where they, you know, many of them talked about feeling they had to prove themselves to their professors that they were equally intelligent and competent, you know, going again, you know, overcoming the stereotype that they were less than that. Mm -hmm. Um, They learned about white people's students' privilege in the sense of, you know, white students smoking dope and not worrying about it, whereas it would have had huge consequences and ruined mm-hmm. their lives, possibly, mm-hmm. if they were caught for this, but somehow white students are oblivious. <laughs> Dr. Aries, keeping okay. it real. She's keeping it real. I love it. I love it. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> this is what they talked about. I'll tell you, when you ask people about their experiences, they yeah. tell you. They I mean, tell you. they're yeah. pretty open. They tell you. Okay, so the other thing, though, they learned is here, um, how to be bicultural. Mm. That is... If you want to get along and succeed at college here, in a predominantly white college, which is what they were at, then they realize that it is important to adjust their presentation and be black in the right way to facilitate their success. Now, the thing about this is called code switching, which yeah. people are probably familiar with in the literature, and you know, it's sometimes called cultural frame switching. But basically, by switching your code and adopting a different performance, whether it's a different way of, a slightly different way of speech, of dress, of hair, demeanor, a person can gain acceptance mm. and maintain effective relationships because people like people who are like them. And so the more like them, the more they like them. Mm. <laughs> I mean, so it had payoffs, okay? And this came, of course, and it's something that happened in the work world, too. If we jump ahead to just what they learned at Amherst, what they learned was, how to do that. Now, some of them already came, as they said, pre-assimilated because more of the affluent white student, black students on our campus had gone to predominantly white schools their whole life. And they had learned how to code switch when they were young. They Mm -hmm. just moved more Mm -hmm. effortlessly. They had white friends. They moved in a white world and in a black world. And it was more effortless. And it wasn't giving up a piece of who they were. They just could be in both. I mean, you know, depending on which context they were in, they just adjusted themselves. But for the black students who came here and hadn't been the ones, there are some who also will be admitted to private day schools and boarding schools and get acculturated before they come to Amherst. Mm -hmm. But the ones who don't have that experience, this is much more of a culture shock. And I think for them, becoming bicultural at this later stage of just psychological development was more jarring and more painful Mm. in terms of it felt more like giving up, you know, having not being true to themselves, giving up parts of themselves. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a universal experience. Um, They're not the only people who felt like this because there's also a um, the lower income students in my study also talked about becoming bicultural. The culture at Amherst College was not the culture of their home communities. Yeah. Um, I, I still, salient in my mind, is an interview I did at the very beginning with a white student from a farming community out in South Dakota who said, and this is days into the beginning of classes, 
I feel like I've been dropped on Mars. Mm. This place is so different. Because in her community, there were almost no black people that she ever saw or knew about, mm-hmm. but they were all referred to by the N-word. Yeah, not, not a lot of black folk hanging out in South Dakota. So I... At <laughs> <laughs> well, any rate, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, not at all. But the thing that they learned at Amherst, the black students, yeah. how to be comfortable in this setting, yeah. how to do well in this setting. Mm-hmm. You we know, get... they learned to make an adjustment. Yes, no, there no. was a price. Yeah. Now, there... okay, one more one thing. What sure. they learned, what they wanted to teach their children. Because I asked the same question to the black participants. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to teach your children about race? And they, given their own experiences navigating a white society. One, they didn't want their children to be held back by racism. But as a result, they were going to teach their children some of the unfortunate realities of growing up in the society as a person who's black, and that likely they would have to work harder and longer to be seen as equal, Mm -hmm. to surpass expectations rather than meet expectations. And they might have to dress differently and perhaps not be apologetically black in um, uh, the work setting. We could spend, we could spend hours, and I mean plural, hours talking just about that one data point um, that these black students learned at Amherst about being bicultural. We could spend literally hours. Because anybody who's been black long enough understands exactly what that journey is about. And particularly if you're like me and these other students at, at Amherst, these 58 that she uh, profiled, uh, I went to a predominantly white institution, so I know what that's like. Uh, but that notion of, bi- of being bicultural, uh, is um, this goes back to Du Bois, right? Du Bois writes about this double consciousness, right? So this is nothing new. Uh, but for these 58 students uh, that she profiled, particularly those who came from places, I'm talking about now about the black students uh, who had never had this experience, uh, it was a shock for them, I am certain. When we come forward, I, I want to ask uh, uh, Professor Aries <clears throat> about retention. It seems to me that at these predominantly white institutions, it's easier. Uh, to, not not that it's easy because a, a lot of schools have a lot uh, more work to do. And again, on the other side of this decision by the Supreme Court on affirmative action, it's going to get more challenging, right? Um, but it seems to me that it's easier to get these black students in than it is to get them out. You can get them in, but you can't get them out. Uh, I wonder what this uh, study, uh, her work on the impact of college diversity, struggles and successes at age 30, the details that she will put in this book. I wonder what the, the takeaway is um, um for universities and colleges about retention, about retaining black students, getting them in and getting them out with degrees. We'll talk about that when we come forward with Dr. Elizabeth Aries on KBLA Talk 15. Professor Aries, um, what does your data set tell you um, or what does it say to Amherst and other colleges and universities on the other side of this uh, decision that we are waiting on from the Supreme Court about affirmative action vis-a-vis the issue of retention of students of color? Now, here's the thing. At Amherst and at other elite colleges, they have been the most successful in producing bottom-to-top mobility in their students, in degree completion. And the reason is, one, that in a school with great resources, which the elite colleges have, students don't take out any loans. Mm -hmm. They get enough money that they don't have to work long hours. And so their parents aren't, and they aren't going to be saddled with great debt. And they can actually focus in on the college experience and their academic work because they aren't working 34 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So in fact, and we have a lot of resources um, that help students 
deal with both academic and more personal issues in term, you know, in terms of um, what they may be struggling with while they're at college. So, in fact, our rate of attrition is very low here, but that's because we don't let students go. I mean, if they do very poorly for a semester, they can come back. <laughs> they just have to show that they have taken one semester elsewhere, have done well, and they're back in. Uh, so we, we really work hard not to let anyone go. There's a real mm-hmm. commitment once you've been accepted here that you're going to make it here yeah. and no. that the resources will be there to help you make it. So every single black student in my study graduated. And the other thing is um, two-thirds of the black participants either completed or were soon to complete a graduate degree because their aspirations were raised while they were here if they mm-hmm. were lower income. And actually close to 47% had completed or were soon to complete a doctoral level degree in law, medicine, a PhD. Mm. Um, they had yeah, a few black students had uh, MBAs, you know, from the top graduate schools. So Amherst and other elite colleges have actually been very successful with this population. Yeah. And one thing that happened in California, when the the problem was greater with the ban put on race conscious admissions. Sure. One thing that happened is the students went to, they still went to college, but they went to less selective schools and they were more likely to drop out. And so in the end, their earnings were less. Mm. So I don't know if this is um, well known, but the data on elite colleges is very positive in terms of outcomes for the students that it graduates, uh, both low-income students and black students. Mm. When we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Professor Aries, I, I want to uh, offer, perhaps as the exit question, um, and I'm going to swing out here, uh, so I'm telling her now, so she, uh, not that she needs time to prep. As you can tell, she's pretty good. She knows her stuff. But just to give her a sense of where I want to go, um, we have discussed more than once on this program and on this station that we are headed, uh, for some, inexorably, but we are headed toward that date uh, when, for the first time ever, this country will be a majority-minority. And I'm wondering, without cutting the question any more than this, what her data suggests to her about what happens when America becomes a majority-minority nation, particularly and especially if we end up doing away with a corrective program like affirmative action. Curious to get her take on that when we come forward with Dr. Aries on uh, KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to gear with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. Professor Aries, I've got uh, three minutes here, and I've got two questions. Let's see if we can work this out. Uh, number one, um, what say you uh, about the the relationship between the data points you've laid out in this hour uh, about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our society with the fact that a few years from now we will be, for the first time ever, a majority-minority nation? I have to retain, it may be utterly naive, a certain optimism despite all the terrifying threats to our move towards racial equality in this Mm -hmm. country. We were terrified all fall about a red wave taking over our Congress. Mm -hmm. And in the end, more progressive people worked really hard, and that election turned out to not be the way we expected. I keep maintaining some hope, as I think my students do. I mean, in terms of going forward, there's so many things 
to worry about here in terms of what's going on in state legislatures Mm -hmm. in this country. It's terrifying. But I have to keep hoping that there are enough progressive people in this country that things, they will keep fighting. They will take over their state legislatures. They let that go for too long, and it's it's really coming back to harm them. So I'm just... I have to make, I mean, to keep going, you have to think about how can I make a difference? How can I better educate people? Um, Otherwise, there's so many things that could, they're so dark in terms of whether we're going to have a planet by the time that (laughs) that happens. I hear you loud and clear. Here's the the exit question, the final question here. Uh, Your your study, um, your 12-year work here, and we thank you for that, has focused on these 58 students. Um, But I wonder finally here what you think the message is writ large to all fellow citizens about their peer groups and this issue of diversity and privilege and inequality? Well, I'd say the students in my study at age 30 all said that a diverse student body was essential to teaching skills to lead and succeed in the work environment. I mean, they left with that belief because of the experiences they'd had encountering people different from themselves getting to know them, learning from them. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly whether I'm answering your question. <laughs> no, you, know, you are. You, are. I, you, you answered I it. Yeah. I think, I think it's a two-part answer. You gave me the first part, which is that diversity on college campuses matter, and we, uh, matters, and we, we have to own that, number one. Uh, number two, I think it also suggests to me, as I, read your, as I read your work, it suggests to me that every one of us, no matter what age we've achieved, ought to include some color in our peer groups. <laughs> That's the way we learn Absolutely. about the other side. That's the takeaway as far as I'm concerned. But I, 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 Yes, I, I actually, I think that's a really important part of the takeaway from this. Nope, I agree. I agree. Um, the forthcoming book um, is uh, the groundbreaking book, I, I predict, uh, coming out in April of this year. It's called The Impact of College Diversity struggles and successes at age 30. I am always indebted to academicians and others who spend years researching a particular topic. 12 years she she worked hard to give us this data, uh, and the timing of it could not be more propitious. Professor Aries, good to have you on. All the best to you. Thank you for your time today. And thank you so much for this opportunity. My great delight. Hour 3 of Tavis Smiley, after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.